0: Welcome to episode four of the True Blue Crime podcast. This is the Superbike Murders Part 3. So if you have not listened to the Superbike Murders Part 1 and 2, I would recommend going back and listening to those first, as this episode will be talking mainly about the suspect of those murders. So... Listen to Parts 1 and 2, which is actually Episodes 2 and 3 of the podcast, and then listen to this one, and it'll make a lot more sense. So, Just wanted to take a second and mention, if you haven't, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page, and check out the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Also, I want to take a second to thank Jeff Thule for being my first of hopefully many Patreon supporters. Jeff jumped out at the highest level, and I appreciate that, Jeff. And please, if you can financially afford it, please support this podcast so I can keep making free episodes for people to enjoy. Uh, Speaking of free episodes for people to enjoy, checking the analytics for this podcast, I was able to see that all three of the first three episodes were downloaded and hopefully enjoyed by a person unknown in brussels belgium so whoever you are thank you very much you have made true blue crime podcasts uh, international at this point and uh again big thank you to all the listeners out there and everyone who's downloaded the episodes and without further ado we will get into episode four here so just a quick recap even though you guys did listen to episodes two and three i hope We spoke in episode two about the Superbike murders themselves in Chesney, South Carolina, and then the three murder victims and the surviving victim in Woodruff, South Carolina. So just again, since these podcasts are more about remembering and honoring the victims of these crimes, I want to go through the names of of the victims we'll be talking about here throughout the case. We have from the Superbike murders, we have the owner of the store, Scott Ponder, his mother, Beverly Guy, his best friend, Brian Lucas, and the shop's mechanic, Chris Sherbert. Then in Woodruff, South Carolina, the three homicide victims are Charlie Carver Megan Coxie and Johnny Coxie and the survivor of this monster is uh, Kayla Brown. So this episode is going to be fully dedicated to speaking about the suspect in these horrendous crimes. identified him near the end of episode three there part two of the Superbike murders but I wanted to re-identify him here and then we'll talk about him here shortly. So his name was is Todd Kohlhepp, uh, and he was 45 years old at the time of his arrest in 2016. And I will take a second to to sidestep here and say I still stand fast by the fact I will not identify any episodes, uh, name them, I should say, after a suspect because I do not want to give them notoriety. I know that this episode kind of flies in the face of that in regards to the fact that this entire episode is dedicated to talking about Todd, but I really feel there are times when someone is such a monster that they require a full episode to kind of break down what made them do what they did, and it kind of falls back on the age-old quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, I know it's not a direct correlation to what we have going on here, but I, I do think, you know, if we don't, if we're not curious about what makes these people do things that are so antisocial, so against the norm of, of society, then I think we miss an opportunity to either potentially identify others that may do this, and as a result, we miss a chance to potentially save victims and i think it's important to just break it down just on a knowledge basis for all of us to better understand kind of what happened and why it happened so that being said again i am not trying to give todd kohlhepp any additional notoriety or or fame or anything by speaking about him but i just hope everyone can understand why I want to do some of these episodes when when the suspect is as Cole Hep is. So we're going to be speaking about Todd Cole He was born on March seventh, in nineteen seventy one, in Florida. Spent most of his I guess younger childhood in Georgia and South Carolina. His parents did divorce when he was two, and he was raised by his mother and stepfather discuss it later, but apparently there was a lot of issues between him and his stepfather at this time period. And to say that his childhood was troublesome, I think is a bit of an understatement. Everything that I read showed that he was extremely aggressive towards other children, had issues forming social bonds with other children, and this kind of manifested by the time he was nine years old, he was already being put into counseling. And this is, you know, in the 70s. This is, you know, was not even born yet. I was, I was almost ready, ready to be born. But from everything that I understood, the the 70s, and even kind of the 80s, was not a time period in which there was kind of the widespread acceptance that there is of counseling now. The support for counseling, I guess, it w- wouldn't have been as high, especially for a nine-year-old. I think that was still kind of in a time period when. You let kids be kids and they'll figure things out. So the fact that he was going through counseling at nine due to his extreme anger and his and I guess by nine he already had a fixation on sexual content. So there are some issues obviously going on there. We'll discuss it later. But uh, he at one point shot a dog with a BB gun and he killed a goldfish by pouring Clorox bleach in its bowl. So there is the famous mcdonald triangle that some people say is a good indicator of future violent behavior or it's often referred to as you know indicators of a potential serial killer Uh, in this case mcdonald triangle is abuse towards animals fire starting or fire play and bedwetting so i couldn't find anything in the research about issues with him bedwetting but fire setting or or fire play is linked to damage, and there were a lot of references to the fact that he liked to destroy other kids' stuff at school um, as he was growing up, so I would put that into the destructive behavior. It's clear that he had cruelty towards animals, and whether or not bedwetting was involved, I think we're going to see that he checked all the boxes for a dangerous future regarding his level of violence. So... Even his biological father, who was mostly out of the picture for most of his younger childhood, said that Hep only knew anger and madness. So at some point around this time period, I think he's in around 10, 11 years old, he spends 3.5 months in a mental institute. They're trying to develop his social skills and... and temper some of that aggression towards other children via uh, he's impatient in this mental hospital. But eventually he gets so out of control, he's damaging stuff in his mother's house that she ships him off to live with his father um, in Tempe, Arizona. So this is 1983. He's 12 years old. He's now living with his father. And as we're going to find out, his father is not exactly a great father figure either. His father claimed to have been a special forces operative in Vietnam that he knew a a ton of stuff about weapons and explosives and according to Kohlhepp his father taught him a lot of stuff about firearms and explosives and that seemed to be the only bond that they shared. Now Kolhep would later claim that his father wasn't really around much anyway that his father was spending time with up to 30 different women um, abandoning Kohlhepp on his own for days at a time and so if we look back, I mean, since the age of since since school age up into his early teens, all of his formative years, Cole Hep is acting out aggressively. He's uh, having major issues with attachments, and now the the only adult in his life is teaching him about firearms and explosives, and then continuing to abandon him. So this is all going to kind of come to a a head on November 25th of 1986. He's now 15 years old, and he makes the decision to kidnap a 14-year-old neighbor girl in Tempe, Arizona, in his father's neighborhood there. So he gets one of his father's 22 caliber revolvers, went over to this girl. Now, this girl was a friend of his, I guess, you know, an acquaintance, and it later was stated that he spent quite a bit of time with her just, just as a friend. But he was upset because he liked this girl and she didn't like him back that way she had crushes on some of his other friends so he felt she rejected him he on this day decides he's going to go over to her house he surprises her and uh, threatens her with this with this gun brings her to his father's house where he binds her tapes her mouth shut and then rapes her he says afterwards he's, he walks her home but threatened her that if she told anyone he would kill her entire family she does end up reporting this incident and the police show up to Kohep's father's home i read later on that he uh, when the police showed up he stepped outside with the gun and put it to his temple and pulled the trigger but he claimed the gun jammed i couldn't find any corresponding police reports to say whether or not this was the case but this is this is what he told somebody later on and that he made the claim that someone clearly wanted him to live he had a higher purpose because of that incident but so as a result of this kidnapping and rape incident he pleads guilty in 1987 to the kidnapping charge but the other charges were dropped so the sexual assault and the weapons charges were dropped. Despite the fact he's only facing the kidnapping charge, he does get sentenced to 15 years in prison and is required to register as a sex offender. It's at this point, he's 16, 17 years old, he goes through a a pretty extensive psychological exam. I was able to find this exam online and the documents show that he clearly had a lot of issues going on inside his head and almost all of them centered around the fact that he's prone to extreme anger and has issues with acceptance and uh, attachment to others. So kind of all of the things that as he grew up, uh, don't think he ever felt like he was wanted after his parents' divorce and he lashed out at other children, which of course would drive them away, which would then uh, become a self-fulfilling prophecy for him that kids didn't like him or didn't want to be around him. And that it would cause him to get angry and destroy their stuff, which then just furthered the cycle there. So he, as he's going through his, his formative years, he's having all these experiences with, you know, anger and acting out towards other children, and it doesn't appear that the counseling or the the time in the mental institute helped him at all. But he's gonna, they're gonna diagnose him with borderline personality disorder. Uh, and in this case, uh, they also checked his IQ, and he had an average IQ of 118, so he's not um, developmentally delayed to the point that he doesn't understand what's going on around him, but he's also not, you know, one of the rare cases where they're extremely intelligent but don't understand uh, their actions around them. So, so unfortunately, while he is going to serve 15 years for, or serve a total of 14 years, sorry, for this Uh, rape and kidnapping Uh, he is he's going to serve these years while he's 16 years old to 30 years old so again he doesn't have much of a childhood to look back on and and have much positive coming from it and then he's sent to prison rightfully so but sent to prison at 16 years old so now during again another very important time period in one's life where they're becoming adult and learning to become responsible for their actions or whatnot, he's spending that entire time in, in prison. So he's going to be released into society in 2001 and I will mention that while he was in prison he managed to graduate from college with a degree in computer science. So he had told the psychologist that did his uh, exam back when he was 15 years old that while he he enjoyed reading. He didn't really like school, but he liked putting stuff together and thought he was pretty good at it. So it, it does seem like he had a knack for engineering or, or building things. And it does seem like he had clearly enough intelligence to um, get a bachelor's degree, graduate college, and, um, you know, in, in a science uh, type environment. So he's going to get hired as a graphic designer in 2002 and work at a company between 2002 and november 2003 as he's working as a graphic designer for a company in spartanburg south carolina so i looked at the map and spartanburg south carolina is about 16 miles from chesney south carolina where the superbike Motors shop is so that's going to tie him into superbike murders so we're going to go back they're going to stick in 2003 here i believe i didn't find exact dates or years but i'm just going to go with the idea that a lot of this stuff happened in around that time period. So prior to the murders, sometime around 2003, Colhep purchases a uh, motorcycle, a uh, sport bike from Superbike Motorsports. Now it's said that he probably purchased too powerful of a sport bike for somebody who has never ridden a motorcycle before. And according to him, he claims he was talked into it but he does have a problem with telling the truth about situations he'll tell partial truths that that take the blame off of him so but he blamed himself blamed Superbike Motorsports for selling him a bike that was too powerful but they end up delivering this bike to his the parking lot where he's living I'm assuming some type of apartment complex or something and he takes it out for a ride, ends up crashing it. And he claims he tried to return the motorcycle because he, had, you know, it was too powerful for him or, or whatever the case may be, he didn't know how to ride it. And he claims that the staff there laughed at him and, and, and told him it was his now and they, they weren't gonna take it back. He says it's just a matter of weeks before the motorcycle is then stolen and he files an insurance claim against the stolen motorcycle and he ends up having to pay a $1,000 deductible. Now, I don't know for a fact that the bike was actually ever stolen. This is what he's claiming happened. It's possible he sold the bike somehow and put an insurance claim out against it. I don't know. There was no record of the bike ever being located. I mean, bikes do have VINs and titles and all that stuff, so I have to imagine that the bike would have resurfaced at some point but uh, regardless the the he claims this incident left a sour taste in his mouth in regards to the whole ordeal however he started going back to college for another degree and he decided he wanted a motorcycle to ride to college for whatever reason so even Despite the fact that he had this bad encounter with this motorcycle shop, he decides he's going to go back there and try to buy another motorcycle. He claims when he gets back to the shop to buy the motorcycle, one of the employees made some implication that they were involved in the theft of his motorcycle, uh, which upsets him and he leaves the store. But he does claim he goes back several times after that even, to sit on different bikes as he's still thinking about buying one of them, but believes that the staff is talking trash about him as he's sitting on these bikes. So eventually he's had enough. He gets enraged, goes and buys a nine millimeter Beretta with 10 round magazines. or sorry, with three 10 round magazines. And then on a Thursday after class, he drives his vehicle to the Superbikes Motorsports where He waits until all four staff members arrive. He said he had been sitting on a black uh, Kawasaki Katana 600 motorcycle and was talking with staff about the motorcycle and eventually told the staff that he would buy it. At this point, Chris, the mechanic, takes the motorcycle back back to the rear of the shop to prep the motorcycle for the sale. And the last customer we mentioned in part one makes his purchase and leaves, at which point Cole Hep walks to the back of the store where Chris is working on the motorcycle, pulls out the gun, shoots Chris twice, and then Cole Hep begins walking back towards the front of the store. He states that Beverly Guy and Brian and Scott have gathered in the the hallway between kind of the front of the store and the rear of the store, back where Beverly Guy's kind of office and the bathrooms are. And he shoots Beverly Guy, which causes Scott and Brian to run to the front door. At which point he shoots at both of them, doing what he calls a tactical reload in the middle of this, uh, in the middle of the shooting. He then walks up to Scott and Brian, shoots each of them in the forehead, walks back into the store, stands over Beverly, shoots her in the forehead, walks back and shoots Chris in the forehead. He then leaves the store disposing of the gun after leaving so not much is known about collapse actions between the superbike murders and nothing really pops up on the radar in his life until 2006 at which point people notice that he files for a realtor's license he falsifies his application because you can't be a felon and have a realtor's license so he falsifies his application and gets his realtor license in 2006 he builds a successful a, a successful real estate practice uh, employing up to 10 other agents at one point however you know just he's got a successful business practice but socially he's still causing a lot of issues There was a lot of reports from female work associates of him being sexually inappropriate also being uh, at times angry and condescending towards uh, his co-workers and then that he liked to talk about firearms a lot, and that he would often watch pornography while in his office at work. So he's still showing some antisocial behavior, antisocial tendencies, but for the most part, he's he's actually built a successful business and is making decent money at this point. So in 2014, he buys the 95-acre property in Woodruff, for just over three hundred thousand, but then he spends an additional eighty thousand on a fence that runs around most of the property. At this time, he's also visiting the local waffle houses, and this is where he meets Megan uh, Coxey. And if you remember from part two of the of this series, Cole Hep would approach or would entice female employees of this waffle house. With large tips trying to get them to come home with him this again falls back likely on his issues with rejection and anger issues in regards to not being uh, attractive or feeling like he's attractive so it's believed that his invitation to Megan and Johnny to his property was in order for him to fulfill the desire that he had with Megan Coxey as a waitress at this store and, and bring, bringing her to his house. Now, I did report in part two that I wasn't sure if Megan or, or had been shot right away with Johnny further research for this episode did reveal somehow they believe that the the couple was reported missing on december 22nd and that was after shortly after megan was last heard from in a jail call asking for bail however they believe johnny was killed somewhere around that time and megan lived for a week after johnny so it is very possible that the Megan and Johnny situation was was very similar to the Charles and Kayla situation, where Johnny was shot in front of Megan, and then Megan was subjected to uh, likely to rape and ca- and captivity for at least a week, and then possibly killed when either she fought back or tried to escape or, or something along those lines. So. Uh, just again, sometimes when you're doing research for one episode uh, in a three-part episode like this, you'll, you'll find the one article or the one reference to that, an- that answers a question from a different episode. So uh, basically, so that's, that's late 2015, early 2016. He has now um, made this property. Now, he claimed to investigators afterwards that this property was supposed to be his quote-unquote paradise, and it was not supposed to be a killing fields situation. However, many investigators do believe that this property was purchased and the fence was put up and and everything in an effort for him to build kind of the perfect environment for him to do exactly what he ended up doing, which was kidnapping women, keeping them there to fulfill his sexual desires and killing them and burying them without anyone finding out. So while he claims one thing it it seems pretty obvious to everybody else that this was this was all part of of a grander plan that he had so we now get into 2016 on august 31st he hires charles and kayla to work on his property Uh, we discussed what happened he shot charles three times in the chest and detains kayla in a container for two months On November 3rd, he's arrested after Kayla is found on his property. So I read one spot that he was put under pretty lengthy interrogation by officers. Other places seem to make it sound like he was more willing to talk. But eventually, I guess he told investigators that if he could talk to his mother and tell her what he had done, before she found out from either the police or the news, then he would be willing to confess to everything. So arrangements were made for hepp's mother to come to the police station. He met with her, told her, uh, confessed to everything to her, gave her a photo and information about putting some money into a friend's child's college savings fund, and then agreed to, to confess to officers. Now, some of the stuff that he confessed to officers re- was released, and some of the stuff that he confessed to his mother was released. Apparently, he told his mother that he killed a lot more than seven people. When she asked him how many, he said, "You don't have enough fingers." So I don't know if she was, you know, holding up fingers to try to get him to indicate how many. Um, but you know, we know of seven. He's claiming it's over ten. He. The only thing he told police in regards to additional murders was that he claimed he shot someone in, in Arizona. It wouldn't give him a time frame, so Tempe police did look at unsolved homicides from the 80s when he was there, and then also for the short time period he lived there after being released from prison, and they weren't able to find anything that, that matched up, but that that doesn't mean that he didn't kill a homeless person that was never reported or a missing person from a different city uh something along those lines so it is unknown whether or not todd did kill someone in uh, tempe arizona he was also looked at for that bank robbery i think i mentioned very briefly in part one and it's a case i might cover at some point and then I'll be referencing some of, some of this stuff but basically it's 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 a triple homicide bank robbery in Greer, South Carolina and just based on the level of violence used and and the lack of of decency towards human life and Todd's claims that he killed more than 10 people if you add the 3 in greer south carolina and the one that he claims he killed in tempe arizona that would put you at 11 which would be more than 10 so he would not be lying however when asked about this he denied uh, any involvement which seems strange because he was willing to admit to the murders that he was the evidence pointed towards him involved in with with, and that he had told kayla that he had uh, he had done but when he was approached about this bank robbery, this triple homicide bank robbery, he denied any involvement. And he definitely seems to have been cooperative about the things that he did, but at the same time, he also liked, seemed to like to play games. So it's, it's unknown. Uh, that case still remains unsolved, which, like I said, we'll pro- might cover it at some point down the road here. But this is again where we'll mention what we talked about in part two, the false confessions. The the information here that was not made to the public was the fact that each victim had been shot in the forehead in an execution style. So only the crime scene investigators, the, the investigators themselves, and anybody who was there that day in 2003 would have known that the Uh, victims were shot an additional time in the forehead and this this was something that Todd you know not only confessed to but bragged about so that and the fact that he was on the list of customers for the superbike motors and that there was a record of him buying that motorcycle so that story checks out all of that leads me to believe that you know police were were 100% confident that, that he was responsible for the Superbike murders. And the fact he was able to locate uh, the bodies of Charles and the fact that Caleb you know, told police that he killed Charles and the fact he was able to locate the bodies of uh, Johnny and Megan Coxie, I think police are... And, and the fact the bodies were on his property, police are pretty confident that that, that he is... Uh, rightfully confessing to those murders as well so he is known to have done seven murders but there are many people that believe that he uh, murdered more people and that there may be more people buried on his property because again he purchased that in in 2014 and even if the fence you know took a little bit to put up he's got you know in a matter of a couple years he's already killed Three people with plans to kill the fourth and bury them on the property and there wasn't really anybody stopping him from doing so. Um, so many believe there there may have been other victims between the Coxies and uh, and Charles and Kayla uh, but at this point there's, there's no proof of it. I know he did con- tell a newspaper uh, that he had committed several more murders but uh, again no nobody at this point can verify that so just to finish up with kind of the put a an ending to this this story before we kind of break down and analyze uh, his life to a certain degree on May 26 2017 Cole had pled guilty to seven counts of murder two counts of kidnapping and one count of sexual assault Uh, He was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Um, So he will never ever be free again. And this plea took the death penalty off the table. So I hear a lot of true crime podcasters that bring up the death penalty in, in their discussions. And just as podcasters represent Americans in general, I think you find a split amongst podcasters like you would find a split amongst the general population i understand both sides of the arguments and having been a law enforcement officer it doesn't necessarily lead me to believe that one path is better than the other however i will say that there are a lot of cases where the death penalty or i should say the threat of the death penalty is enough to prevent someone from trying to escape justice via a trial and the reason i say that is in any death penalty case the reason the death penalty is is even available is usually because of the heinous nature of the crimes whether it be the age of the victims the actions taken by the perpetrator upon the victims the number of victims whatever it may be it's usually the death penalty as far as i can tell is reserved for the most egregious cases and those are the cases that that i believe likely affect the most amount of people, and whether that be because of the number of victims or or what I went through, the age of victims, whatever it may be. Trials, people don't always realize how absolutely damaging trials can be to the victims. And I don't mean that just from the standpoint of it's hard for them to relive these experiences, which is, is one of the main reasons why um, it's so difficult. The trials are so difficult on the victims. But I mean it because trials last forever. I mean, some of my cases, even if the investigation took six months to a year, the the actual process of the trial was was sometimes years. And that included a lot of subpoenas to appear where... Whether you're a police officer or in the case of the victims of the family or whatnot, you take off time, you find somebody to watch your kids, whatever it may be, because you don't want to miss this court date or you can't miss this court date because it's a crime to do so. And a day before that court date, the whole thing gets moved back another month or two. And this will happen countless number of times, as I said, for a period of up to a year, two years, sometimes longer. And it just drains these families of these victims, and it drains everybody else involved. Um, the only one, person that benefits, to a certain degree, I guess, is the criminals. That you know, just delays justice, and most of them, if if it's going to a trial, are likely going to continue to stay in jail. So they're not risking much by continuing these trials. So that's just kind of a sidebar on. The fact that when you have these really heinous crimes the last thing the the family needs to do is 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 sit through a two three four week trial as they listen to crime scene technicians break down uh, what and, and show photos of what the crime scene looked like photos of their of their loved ones with with horrible injuries or or deformities or whatever it may be um And then often cases, as like this one, um, the prosecution likely is going to would have likely called Kayla to the stand. And if not, the defense would have called Kayla to the stand. And these defense attorneys with Kayla on the stand would have just attacked her. And not only would she have to relive everything that she went through while she sits, you know, 15, 20 feet away from the man that did this to her for two months, everything about her life is going to be brought into question by these defense attorneys to try to create some little angle of you know doubt in the jury um towards the the uh, towards cole epps uh, guilt here so avoiding a trial if possible is always the best way i mean sometimes plea agreements don't work out in the favor of the family or the victims they feel that the Uh, Suspect gets off too leniently, but in this case, you know, seven consecutive life murder or life sentences. He's not going to see the outside of a prison uh, in his lifetime. So to avoid putting everybody through that trial and he wants to avoid the death penalty. It's one of the one of the reasons why I'm a proponent for the death penalty. Again, I can understand some of the arguments against it. Uh, I'm not standing up here on a a pulpit. holding signs supporting the death penalty by any means but it's just one of the one of the reasons for the death penalty that that I think needs to be considered when you're when you're bringing up the argument so so as we wrap up this episode I know I just wanted to take a second and just reiterate the fact that, just because I talked so much about Kohlhepp's childhood and some of the stuff that he had to deal with in terms of, of his childhood, I don't by any means take away any of the responsibility that he has towards what he did. He is a kind of a uh, difficult guy to place into the spectrum of psychological disorders. I know the one psychiatrist, and I'm by no means a psychiatrist, so I'm not trying to diagnose him, but I'm just saying he doesn't fit the mold of a lot of the severe mental disorders in terms of, yes, he has borderline uh, personality disorder traits, but he also has shown remorse for what he did, which is not... Doesn't which kind of separates him, I guess, from a lot of these other killers that share some of his, his mental um, issues. It, it definitely seems as if he was so obsessed with, with being wanted or being a part of, of something else, being attached to something, and, and with everything that he went through uh, growing up, that combined with his uh, obsession with violence and, and firearms and and whatnot, uh, he just kind of morphed into this this adult that while he could function in society, he was a successful businessman. Um, he just could not handle uh, you know situations that that drove him to extreme rage, and he just reacted in ways that you know are almost ununderstandable by anybody else so so again he's he's kind of an anomaly when it comes to uh, these types of killers. He's a very interesting case study I'm sure for psychologists and whatnot but the important thing here is that you know we remember the young lives that were cut short by, Someone who just is nothing short of a monster. And one of the few positives we can take from from this, besides the fact that Kayla was able to survive, is that he wasn't able to continue to victimize other people using that property. Uh, and just before I end here, I, I, I guess I forgot to go back and mention, police did look, after he was arrested, police kind of looked through... Um, I'm guessing during some of their computer forensics uh, looking for some of that Facebook information and whatnot they did look through his I'm guessing his computer and found some online profiles for Amazon where he rated uh, several products and and just a, a glimpse into his mind is uh, he rated for a fixed blade knife uh, he said hey, he hasn't stabbed anyone yet dot 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 yet Dot, 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 but I'm keeping the dream alive, and when I do, it will be with a quality tool like this. Uh, for a entrenching tool, which is a foldable shovel, he rated it five stars and said, keep in your car for when you have to hide the bodies and you left the full-size shovel at home. Does not come with a midget, which would have been nice. And then a final one, he rated a master padlock with five stars, giving it solid locks have five on a shipping container won't stop them but sure will slow them down if they are too old to care so this is a guy that inside of his brain he had a lot of morbid and dark thoughts going on and unfortunately they manifested at least three times four times if you count the 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 poor young girl in tempe arizona but they manifest at least four times that we know of and i would not be surprised if investigators are able to locate uh further victims at some point from this monster so that is uh a wrap on the Superbike murders uh all three parts i appreciate everybody sticking around and listening to all three episodes i will probably be picking a slightly less complicated episode for uh, for the next case uh, but i hope to have it out in the next couple days and uh Again, please like and follow on Facebook, contribute to Patreon if you can, and until next time, appreciate it guys, take care, bye.